Fusion, the international science radio show. We have a bouncer and the doors of perception. The good, the bad, the ugly. It gets pretty exciting. The myths, the truths. Toxicology. Astro seismology. Magnetism. The dark side. Genetically engineered potatoes. Planetoid. Planetoid. I love that word. <laughs> <laughs> Hello and welcome to Diffusion. Sit back and relax while we odorise your brain with weird and wonderful science. I'm Ian Wolfe. On this edition, James Hayes talks about the science of odour and how odours affect us. But first, here's news of salty masks. Salt for breath. Researchers at the University of Alberta in Canada have discovered that soaking the filters in surgical masks in a salt solution and drying them can kill any viruses in droplets that hits the mask. Following up from this, researchers from Boston University in the US have discovered that you can apply the same treatment at home to paper towels to give you a coronavirus-killing filter for your own mask. The SARS-CoV-2 virus spreads by droplets that we spray when we speak or sing or cough or sneeze. When these droplets hit the salt crystals on the mask, they wet the salt and absorb it. When the salt solution with the droplet dries, the salt crystals form sharp edges that pierce and slice the virus and kill it. The virus is inactive in 5 minutes and destroyed completely within 30 minutes. The University of Alberta first developed the salt-encrusted surgical masks in 2012 to give medical staff extra protection against the flu. The team have taken out a provisional patent for the salt-encrusted surgical masks and will begin manufacture within two years. Their paper was published in Nature Scientific Reports and was titled Universal and Reusable Virus Deactivation System for Respiratory Protection. The Boston University team wanted to build on this research to provide a solution for people to protect themselves right now. They found that when they soaked a kitchen paper towel in a solution of table salt and allowed it to dry, the treated paper towel was a better filter against coronavirus and even bacteria than a surgical mask. They've published a recipe for people to try at home. I am not a medical expert. So, like me, you'll be trying this at your own risk. They say to measure out 100 millilitres or 3.5 ounces of water. They use distilled water, so you could try to copy that, but we don't know if it's important. Tap water might also work. Heat the water until it's hot to touch, but not boiling. Mix in 5 teaspoons, or 30 grams, of table salt until it's completely dissolved. Soak a piece of household paper towel that you've pre-cut to the shape of a mask in the solution for 5 minutes to ensure the solution completely soaks the material. Allow the paper towel to completely dry. Secure the pre-treated paper towels to the outside of a homemade mask, surgical mask, or N95 respirator and replace with another pre-treated paper towel about every two hours. 
A lot of cloth masks on the market have a space for a filter made of charcoal or some sort of paper. And while I imagine the pre-treated paper towels would be ideal for that pocket, we don't know if that's just as good as putting the paper on the outside where it can be the first line of attack against the droplets or not. The paper from Boston University was published in the American Journal of Infection Control and was titled Pre-treated Household Materials Carry Similar Filtration Protection Against Pathogens When Compared with Surgical Masks. You're listening to Ian Wolfe on Diffusion Science Radio. Send emails to science at diffusionradio.com. We're brought to you across Australia on the Community Radio Network and podcast over the internet on www.diffusionradio.com. We smell. James Hayes is a researcher at the University of New South Wales Civil and Environmental Engineering Odour Laboratory. We spoke by Zoom, and I began by asking him how... Do humans smell? Well, humans smell much the same way other mammals do. So what happens is that we have a sheath of neurons, brain cells, called olfactory receptor neurons, and they're within our nose. Just underneath that, we have a mucus layer. Typically, we personally experience this mucus layer when we have a cold or a flu or something, and it tends to go a bit haywire. And what happens is that particular chemicals go up our nose when we sniff, And it's a little bit like a jigsaw puzzle. So you'll have a particular receptor with a particular chemical. They all link together and that will elicit a reaction that goes towards the brain. And does the brain do extra processing the way it does for vision, where it sort of contrasts wavelengths to give you a sensation of colour? Yes, it's very complicated, unfortunately. Well, fortunately for me. So we have about 5 million of these olfactory receptor neurons, ORNs, and that translates to us detecting about one trillion distinct odours, which is quite a number. It does all sorts of things. So the example I like to use is if you have a look at a fruit bowl and you might have lemons and strawberries and cucumbers in this very eclectic fruit bowl. Now, the number of chemicals within all these different fruits is variable. And if it was just a very sort of, you put, you get out what you put in, all you would do is smell these different chemicals. But What you can really do is say, I smell lemons, I smell strawberries, and I smell cucumbers separately, even though some of these chemicals might even be the same chemical. Our brain is capable of processing that information. It's very complicated, and we still don't quite know how it works. (laughs) And some people can't smell things at all, and some people can only smell things sometimes. Yes. So there's a couple of conditions. There's anosmia. And anosmia is a complete lack of the sense of smell. We call it olfaction. This can happen a few ways. It can be genetically based. It can happen through disease. It can also happen through injury. So we have the signal that comes from our olfactory receptor neurons. That goes through a part of skull in the brain called the cribriform plate. If you have an injury to your head, those neurons might shear off and then you've lost your sense of smell. It's interesting because olfactory receptor neurons and the whole sense of smell in general It's the only neurons that regenerate and grow back very quickly. These neurons also grow quickly, but they don't know how to go back through the same holes in the plate, unless you're very fortunate. You also have hyposmia. 
This is a, an inability to smell certain odorants. This typically happens through environmental factors. So for instance, I did a paper a very long time ago now where we, I looked at smoking and smoking does affect your overall sense of smell, but the chemicals that are within the cigarette itself are affected even worse off. And that's because you have these odorants bombarding those particular receptor neurons all the time. And those neurons basically don't regenerate as fast as what they should. Wow. So there's a lot going on there. And of course, you're actually an engineer. So you've got a whole laboratory working on odors and what they are and how people react to them. Yes. So my career started off as a psychologist and I got my my honours in psychology. And then I moved over to engineering to look at sort of the way communities might behave to particular odorants and that sort of thing. (laughs) And so there's obviously quite a lot going on there that people have really strong reactions to some odors and others we barely notice or or others we really like. Yes, yes. So we still don't really have an explanation for why you'll have two neighbours sitting next to each other. One will experience a bad odour and they'll make complaints about it. They'll be very upset about it. It will affect their way of life almost. And the neighbour next to them won't even notice or care for it. We still don't quite know why that happens. We've got some theories, but nothing, nothing really uh, that strong. Because there are people with things like chronic fatigue syndrome and fibromyalgia who get so sensitive to perfumes and deodorants and other chemicals in the air that it makes them ill. Yes, that can happen. That can also happen to people who aren't experiencing any particular illnesses. You have people called super sniffers, colloquially, where they can smell things very well, but it doesn't even need to be that. It can be someone with an average sense of smell and they're just affected very strongly. The other large quadrant of people that we find who are affected very adversely by smells are people with post-traumatic stress disorder. So in America, you have a lot of troops returning from conflict. These conflicts have particular odors. And unfortunately, those odors are similar to some industrially produced odorants. And that will actually trigger very poor flashbacks for these individuals. So people form associations with odours and particular situations and events? Yes. Olfactory memories are actually our oldest type of memory. So newborns, the first thing they start with is an olfactory memory. They tend to be the most enduring type of memory, more than visual or verbal. Unfortunately, you can't really learn for a test with olfaction. And as a result, you can say something like, do you remember the first time you had a strawberry? And most people are going to be able to give you some sort of explanation as to when they first had that. And as a result, yes, you have a lot of associations with particular odours. If you smell a perfume of an ex as you walk past, you'll probably have flashbacks of particular memories. I've heard that's an argument for why men don't like going through cologne shops and things like that, because it's just too much. Yeah, that's a common occurrence. Is there also a genetic component for things like the durian fruit is one of those ones where some people, (laughs) I mean, most people apparently find the smell bad, but some people find that doesn't affect how they enjoy the fruit and some people can't stand it. Is that related to your sense of smell, do you think? That is 100% your sense of smell. However, this isn't typically modulated by genetics, although some things are. For instance, the classic example is coriander. And for some people, coriander tastes like soapy dishwater. Um, That is determined by one gene, and that one gene is not working the way it should. With the example of durian, it actually has to do with culture 
and perhaps a little bit of ethnicity as well. So people who grow up in a culture of uh, eating durian have those memories from their childhood, and as a result, they're more comfortable with eating it. In fact, some scientists developed a non-odorous durian a little while ago, and they released it back to the countries that typically eat it, and it didn't sell very well because they associated that odour with pleasant memories of eating the fruit. There you go. (laughs) And so how do you measure these sort of things? Well, it's a little bit complicated. Please let me know if I'm getting into too much detail. You have several measurements. You have olfactory threshold. Olfactory threshold is essentially the point at which a concentration increases and you can say, I can smell that or I can't smell that. You can't necessarily tell me what it is, but you'll have an understanding of uh, that something is present. Then you have something called olfactory discrimination, OD. And OD is the ability to say that one odor is different to another odor. And then you have olfactory identification, and that's classically saying, I smell strawberry, I smell lemons, I smell meat, whatever that might be. They're the three basic measures. We also have other things like olfactory hedonics, which rates the pleasantness of a smell. We also have olfactory intensity, which judges the intensity of a particular odor. What I find particularly interesting about that is that olfactory intensity is usually quite a basic scale. It just goes from 0 to 10. But the vast majority of people, everyone, if you mark a 7, chances are the person next to you will also mark a 7 for how intense a particular odor is. And that's one of the very few things about your sense of smell, which is fairly similar across all people. How good are we at discriminating? If you've got an odor that you don't like and you add a deodorant, Yes. Does that overwhelm your sense of smell so you don't smell the bad thing? Because that's how it's sold. Yes. Well, the problem is, is that that doesn't really work. So, yeah, deodorants, I'm sure there's other mechanisms involved, but the typical mechanism is, is that here's a lot of very strong odorants. They're not unpleasant or pleasant. They're just kind of neutral, but they're there, and they'll overload your olfactory receptors. Unfortunately, the odors that we typically find unpleasant, so the ones in body odor and things like that, they involve a lot of sulfur, H2S, and all the things that come from H2S, dimethyl trisulfide, dimethyl disulfide, I won't go on. These are all unpleasant, and these are all things that our brain is hardwired to identify at very, very low concentrations. Because in our evolutionary history, sulfur comes from rotting meats and things like that. We're trained to avoid them. So it will work for very small concentrations, but if it gets any higher, chances are you're still going to be able to detect the body odor and other unpleasant odors. And we're talking concentrations of parts per trillion, parts per billion, like one part will be enough for us to detect it and be put off by it. So the deodorant's not quite going to mask it? It's not going to mask it if you have a strong odor. If you have some mild odor, the odor day-to-day, it will probably do a good job. If there's other factors involved, I don't have a huge understanding of how deodorants behave, but BO in particular, it's not formed necessarily by yourself. Exude particular oils from your skin, and these oils are digested by bacteria, and those bacteria let off these particular odorants. Maybe a deodorant could kill off those bacteria for a little bit. That's certainly possible. Things like that. So... Yeah, it will work for minor odors. It's not going to work for anything that approaches significance. But for people with uh, body odor, if you wait a couple of weeks and you're in a scenario where everyone 
isn't using deodorant and everyone isn't taking showers, you'll adapt to that pretty quickly because your brain, I should say, is quite adept at noticing, yes, this is an unpleasant odor, but I can ignore it. So for example, at one point I was up in the, the snowy alpine regions and we got snowed in and the shower had frozen, everything was frozen. We had to stay up there for a couple of weeks. We all had unpleasant body odor, but we got used to it very quickly <laughs> until we came back down, of course, and then we furiously had showers. What are the implications for community with odor? What, what happens? What's your work in that area? Sure. So I've looked at particular industrial areas, uh, industrial placements that produce different kinds of odor. Typically, what we're looking at are industrial placements that are environmentally beneficial. So certain types of recycling and that sort of thing. So to me, that's kind of my passion right now. The impact of odors is controversial with communities, but I think it's important to acknowledge their concerns because if you think about it, unlike a particularly unpleasant visual experience or an auditory experience, these things tend to be not very permanent. An odor can stick around, it can invade your home, you might not really feel that you have an escape from it. And so it does have the potential to cause some very seriously aggrieved community members. The extent to which there's been certain facilities in Australia and definitely abroad where community outrage has closed them down or severely limited their processing. Amelioration efforts to like get rid of the odors for those processing plants that can go up to the hundreds of millions of dollars in some instances. So it's a very important thing for industrial production, typically lots of recycling, landfill, lots of animal production, and certain primary products as well. So it's a big concern. Typically, odors account for about 50% of all complaints for most industrial sectors. And yeah, the complaints can be a really big issue. And is it something that industry is working on to improve? Oh, absolutely. So at the, in the odor lab at UNSW, we're working collaboratively with a lot of different industries, in particular drinking water to ensure people are comfortable with drinking water and other water facilities. And they know that odors are a big issue. And we're working very, very hard to ensure that we encapsulate the community experience as best as we can. And what we're trying to do at the moment, really, is turn that community experience into feedback to the industry so we can say, okay, well, at this particular time, these community members are experiencing these kind of odors. Now, if we go back, look at how the particular product or whatever it might be is processed, we can then say, oh, it's this particular process, we can change that. We can do something to make sure that community members aren't experiencing that. And that's something I, I feel really happy about. <laughs> what about the differences in the way people perceive things? Is there a difference between the genders? Yes, there's quite a noticeable difference. Women tend to be able to smell odours and detect odours better than men can, and they can detect a wider variety of odorants. They also tend to hold on to their odorants. Their sense of smell ability is a lot longer than males. Both of them tend to degrade at um, 60 years of age. For men, this degrades a lot faster. There's other influences, environmental ones, like smoking and being in particular environments, cultural ones, and uh, ethnic ones. So for instance, people within a Japanese culture and possibly arguing Japanese ethnicity have a very hard time detecting aniseed because that's not a part of 
their food or um, culinary experience at all in Japan. And so they have a harder time detecting it and they certainly don't perceive it as a food. Unlike some people do in Europe, I think it's about 50% of people like licorice and about 50% don't. There's other influences. Your belief in how good you are at perceiving affects your ability to perceive odors, which is bending the mind a little bit, but that does happen. Your sort of attention to odors. So for example, myself, I've been trained to work on particular analytical machines at the odor laboratory. As a result, I have to be trained to be able to identify odorants and characterize them in a particular way. And that means that my abilities to perceive odors are probably a little bit better than the average person's. And honestly, some of it is just up to luck of the draw. There is a huge amount of variability in the public space. And a lot of that variability, we just don't know where it comes from. And wine connoisseurs have a smell training sort of regime that they go through where they learn to detect a wide range of particular scents. So it's something you could train up. Yes, it is something you can train up. In fact, we use the exactly the same machines they do, except they're looking at wines and we are looking at the leavings of a particular industrial plant. So I think they get the better end of the stick in that regard. But yes, it is something that you can train, you can have training programs. There is a phenomenon called the tip of the nose phenomenon, where if you're given an odor, but you don't have any visual reference to it, you struggle to characterize it. It's just something that everyone has because we typically don't pay a huge amount of attention to our sense of smell. So a lot of the training is overcoming that particular issue. So I guess, is that to do with the way we think that if we can label things, we can more easily remember them and identify those experiences later? Yeah, that's one part of it. And I think the other part is just paying more attention to it. So for instance, if you're in a room and you're reading a book and there's a ticking clock in that room, you can switch off your attention to that ticking clock and you can forget about it. Much in the same way, I feel, if you begin to pay more attention to your sense of smell, it becomes a more important part of your overall experience. That was the first part of my interview with James Hayes about odour. You can hear more from James about pheromones next week. Recording an interview with Zoom for the first time was interesting. Not the least because I was able to record a video as well as the audio. The video seems to show both of us side by side when it might have worked better to have the two video streams that I could edit together. Perhaps that's a Zoom setting I just missed. The other issue is that Zoom can override the Windows system sound settings. The night before I recorded James, I ran a trivia session for friends on Zoom. For some of the questions, I played music. My friends could hear it, and I couldn't. So I used the settings in Zoom to put the sounds through my laptop speakers where I could hear them. When I called James on Zoom, the sounds started coming from the speakers, despite Windows saying it was coming through my recorder over USB. At the end of the interview... I discovered that my recorder had recorded silence. It had gone through the speakers instead of USB audio. But that's alright, because I had Audacity running. I found that Audacity on the laptop had recorded the sound from the speakers through the microphone. So they sounded tinny and awful. Luckily, the Zoom recording worked perfectly, as you've just heard. Sadly, James and I both made the rookie mistake of looking at the image of the face of the person we were speaking to 
instead of looking into the camera. So we both appear to be looking down. I'll break the video recording up into smaller parts to make uploading easier, and eventually post them on YouTube. I'll post previews of the video first for my wonderful Patreon supporters. A big thank you to Stormy, Yevgeny, Joanna, and Ian. You're still a citizen with the power to vote. Living in a scientific age, we need citizens who know enough about science to make intelligent decisions about what they do. Are we going to use it constructively to promote peace and, and give the world freedom from want? It'll be up to you, and you too. And that's all from us this week on Diffusion. Are you a scientist, artist, biohacker or maker who'd like to be interviewed about your work? Would your company like to sponsor Diffusion? Send your contributions, opinions, helpful suggestions and donations to science at diffusionradio.com. That's science at diffusionradio.com. Please like the Diffusion Science Radio page on Facebook and rate the show on iTunes. Tell your friends. Follow me on Twitter at Ian Wolfe. The news music was Rhinos Theme by Kevin MacLeod of Incompetech.com. I produce Diffusion, which is broadcast around Australia to 28 stations on the community radio network, including 2RBM in the Blue Mountains of New South Wales, 8CCC in Alice Springs and Tennant Creek, 2NVR in Nambucca Valley, 3MBR in the Mallee Border Districts of Victoria and South Australia, City Park Radio 7LTN in Launceston, Tasmania, and 2XXFM in Canberra. Diffusion is syndicated globally on the National Science Foundation's Science360 internet radio station and also on astronomy.fm. Subscribe to the podcast on the Diffusion website, www.diffusionradio.com. That's www.diffusionradio.com and check the website for links, photos and videos about this week's show. If you enjoyed the show, you can explore more than a thousand previous episodes archived on diffusionradio.com where the shows are labelled by keywords so you can focus in on the stories you want to hear. Join my patrons at patreon.com slash diffusionradio. Make a donation through paypal.me slash ianwolf. Support Diffusion by buying from the affiliate links at diffusionradio.com slash support. Subscribe to the Diffusion YouTube channel at youtube.com slash c slash diffusionradio. I'm Ian Wolf. Join us inside your audio device of choice for more science wondering next week on Diffusion Science Radio. Science is fun. It helps you to learn, to know, and to appreciate. When you study science, you may go on field trips. You discover the marvelous interrelationships between all living things. You learn to read the history of the earth as it is written in rocks and fossils. You find out what makes things tick. Everything from a molecule to a living organism. In the study of science is found the most useful and satisfying knowledge of man. Knowledge of his physical world, its past, its present, and its future. And in your moments of relaxation, now and in the years to come, you will find the study of science leading you into fascinating pursuits. Photography. Collecting. Why study science? Study science because you will find in the study of science a richer, more rewarding life.